Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner and Pradeep Dasigi from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Alana Fish, who is an assistant professor at the University of Alberta in Canada and also a member of the Alberta Machine Learning, uh, sorry, the, the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us, Alana. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited to be part of a podcast. I've listened to thousands of hours of podcasts in my life, so so cool to be on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's an interesting experience for me. Anyway, the I guess I know Alana from CMU. We both shared an advisor that we worked on very different projects at CMU. And so I barely talked to you at CMU, unfortunately. Yeah. But Alana, I wanted to talk to you about language and the brain, because there's a lot of really interesting work that you and others have done. And I thought you'd be a good person to talk to us about it. Yeah, cool. I'm excited to do that. I wanted to say, though, before we get started, that um, though Tom Mitchell had two very different research groups, his intention was actually that they become one at some point. So never-ending language learning must have something to do with the brain. Yes, (laughs) yes, definitely. And there was a little bit of crossover, though not as much as we we might have wanted. So I guess maybe to get started, Alana, this is a really big area, and you have a lot more expertise here than I do. And so I wonder if you want to give us like a really quick synopsis of like how do you approach like the intersection of NLP and brain research? What what do we know? Like what are the main things that people have looked at so far? So I guess I would say the, in my mind, the big first finding was Tom's in 2009, where he found that a very simple model of corpus co-occurrence can actually be used to predict brain imaging uh, patterns while people read those corresponding words. So that told us that something about the way that words co-occur together in a, in a corpus can actually be related to the way that the brain represents meaning. So the models that we had been using, like LSA, um, to represent word meaning that, that correlated quite well to behavioral data actually also correlated to brain imaging data. So um, in retrospect, you might think, uh, well, of course that's true. But at the time, it wasn't clear that that would be true. And it was actually kind of a big finding that these that these models had anything to do with the brain. Yeah, I guess it, as you say, in retrospect, it makes a bit of sense that if we believe that meaning, or at least parts of meaning, are found in corpus statistics and meaning is represented in some way in the brain. If both of these are accurate accurate reflections of meaning, there should be a correspondence. But of course, I mean, the brain could have like one giant hash table where like there was the the relationship between words had nothing to do with their their corresponding brain imaging patterns, right? That could be possible. It's not what's possible. It's not what happened. But I mean, interesting. Yeah. And I guess one one really big question for me, and I think this is an area that's probably not very familiar to a lot of our listeners. So when you say brain activity, what, what exactly does that mean? And how do we measure that? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's lots of different ways to measure brain activity. And I would say that so the, the Mitchell paper that I mentioned used fMRI, so functional magnetic resonance imaging. So that measures essentially what you can think of as the oxygen levels in the brain. And because your neurons require energy and oxygen to work, the oxygen levels change in, your, in parts of your brain as your neurons increase their activity. So what we can measure is essentially a byproduct of lots of neurons working together at the same time in a particular region of the brain. Uh, so fMRI has great spatial resolution. Uh, we can get down to a millimeter cubed resolution, but it has not great time resolution. And that's partially because what we're measuring is the diffusion process of oxygen in the brain. Um, so that's just a slow moving process. So fMRI, you can get about one sample every one to two seconds. But as you can imagine, people uh, can read and listen to speech much faster than that. So you end up with more than one word per sample. 
There's also EEG and MEG, which are similar technologies. EEG measures the electric field caused by neurons firing. MEG measures the magnetic field caused by neurons firing, and both of them has, have great time resolution, so you can get up to 1,000 samples a second. That could be much better for studying language. But you lose things when you, when you move to MEG and EEG, and one of the things you lose relative to fMRI is spatial resolution. So you don't have the same one millimeter cubed resolution in uh, MEG or fMRI and EEG or MEG. Uh, EEG is slightly worse than MEG for spatial resolution. That give you... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's great. And so then, if we tie this back to the two thousand nine paper that you mentioned by Tom Mitchell, mm-hmm. is is there anything more concrete but still largely intuitive that you can say about more more concrete than just like there is a correlation between corpus statistics and brain activity? Like, is is do we know it where this yeah. happens, or like is is this a time thing? Like. Can, can we say more than just there's a correlation? Yeah. So one of the wonderful things about the 2000, that paper was that um, the corpus occurrence model, a co-occurrence model was really simple. So it wasn't the regular LSA where we calculate the co-occurrence of all of the words and then do SVD. Rather, it was that they chose 25 verbs and then specifically calculated the co-occurrence with those verbs. So how often does the word dog appear with the, with the verb eat or the verb touch or the verb drive? You can imagine that Dogs eat and we touch dogs, so those might be more common, but dogs don't drive, so that would be less common. So it was these 25 verbs were were very interpretable dimensions in that they are literally the co-occurrence with those verbs. They tell you how important that verb is in relation to the noun, and they could actually map those verbs onto the brain. So they found that, like, the I think the push dimension had activity in one of the areas of the brain that is known to be responsible for perceiving biological motion um, stuff like that. So that, that was a little more intuitive. Wow. But then, of course, as we move away from that, as we move to models that become less uh, interpretable, then we lose parts of that easy mapping. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. So maybe now is a good time to move on, as you say, to like the, the next decade of research in this. <laughs> yeah. uh, and again, I don't want to like dig into details of every paper here, but I wonder if you can tell us like what are, what are the trends, what are the highlights of things that we've learned since then? Yeah, so, about language in the brain. So my PhD work was on composition. And specifically, when I was doing my PhD, people were very interested in adjective noun composition. So that's what I studied. And a part, it, it didn't actually come out in my thesis as strongly. But part of what I found was that the models of composition that we were using, it's like adding together vectors and multiplying vectors. You remember back in the pre-neural network, network <laughs> days, that's what we were doing. Uh, did not really work very well. Did not correlate to brain imaging data very well. So I actually ended up just using single word representations for my thesis. Um, but that's sort of like the beginning of like, well, single words, what's, what's the next step? The next step would be putting words together. And then from there, beyond just phrases, we might talk about sentences or even full stories. So Leila Wahebe in my lab, PhD lab as well, she collected data while people listened to chapter nine of Harry Potter. Oh, actually, they read it. Uh-huh. So I should say they read it on a screen. And she actually found that she could detect, even though it was fMRI and she had essentially one image for every four words, she was still able to detect what set of four words people were reading for each one of the brain images. So that, and that, her first work actually didn't use composition at all. It just, again, modeled the words completely separately as these independent units. Uh, But from there, there was a sort of a move towards LSTM. So can we use a model that incorporates some sort of composition to predict brain imaging data? And, And Layla had one of the first papers using uh, neural language models to do that. Interesting. I'm I'm still trying to wrap my head around like what would it mean if there was a correspondence between say your the composition work that you did if there was a correspondence between that those particular set of composition functions and brain activity 
would that mean that we understand how the brain composes meaning? Like, it, would that would those results be strong enough to conclude that? Like, I, I'm not really sure how to understand these things. So I think it would have been evidence to support that that we might understand what how the brain represents composition. So like, let's say that it was just additive. It was just adding together the dimensions of the vector. Then we might understand that there's a, so there's a part of the brain that understands biological motion. And when I apply this adjective to this noun, the biological motion becomes like larger. There's more biological motion. So that part of the brain activates more. And if it was that sort of just additive scaling type thing, maybe we could understand the semantics of composition in the brain, but uh, it turned out to not be the best model. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm just, wondering like the the brain seems like a mystery to me and probably to a, a lot of people even to cognitive scientists i imagine yes, I, don't, I don't know absolutely but, yeah and i think part of like, part of your i think part of what you're struggling with if i might just put words in your mouth is that like what does it mean for a language model to correlate with the brain what does that tell us and you're right that it's a little foggy what does what do we know now that we know that these models of these computer models of language correlate to the brain and the there's some things that we can know about the brain so we can trace the flow of information in the brain because we know which parts of the brain at which time are correlating to the language model. So we know which areas of the brain must be representing something that correlated to that information over time. So that's useful. But what does it tell us about uh, language models? I think that that's actually an open question. And I don't want to jump ahead, but also I think an interesting question, how, what are language models not doing that the brain is doing? Yeah, those are those are indeed really interesting questions. I have a I have a question at the risk of kind of straying off topic, so feel free to run the conversation back in. But I'm curious about like when you gave the example of the biological part of the brain lighting up, or sorry, the the part of the brain that is associated with motion. I thought would the same thing happen if you looked at an image or some other kind of the same concept but in a different modality? Is it is it the language part of the concept or is it just that um, concept that's being? That's a fabulous question. A fabulous question. So I think that semantics exists beyond language. And I had a paper in 2018 that tried to show that, that word vectors actually correlate to computer models of vision. So whatever you think about semantic, whatever semantic representations exist in word to vec, those word to vec vectors correlate to the higher order uh, hidden representations in convolutional neural nets. So that means that a model that knew nothing about language was only learning to do object classification amongst the thousand ImageNet classes, learned representations that look like, or some definition of look like, word vectors. So <laughs> this sort of a roundabout way of getting at your question that um, semantics is not tied to language because of course, so we understand semantics in a way that is very tied to language, but of course dogs and cats understand the world in some mm -hmm. way, right? And so they must have some representation of meaning. It's not the same as ours. It's not as complex as ours, but it's something. And they get it through the world without language. So language mm -hmm. is not necessary to understand meaning, but it is an excellent way to communicate meaning, mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. I guess we could probably push on that and, and reach a point where there are certain things that you just can't understand without language, I would imagine. Absolutely. But, yeah. And there's probably the sorts of things that cats and dogs don't, don't understand. Interesting. Yeah, I guess maybe now is a good time to talk about, you, you have a paper that was recently accepted to findings of the MNLP, mm -hmm. and we thought it would be good to talk about this particular paper. And here you were looking at a particular set of questions that you alluded to earlier in this conversation. Do you want to tell us what those questions are? So I guess I, I sort of up against the question that you've been hinting at, which is like, why do we care that LSTMs look like the brain? So when 
one thing we didn't quite get to is that also the hidden representations of LSTMs that are trained to predict the next word in a sequence, those hidden representations also correlate to brain imaging, so brain activity recorded by a brain imaging. So if that's true, something about a model that's, that's trained purely to predict the next word in a sequence represents language like a human does, though a human is, uh, parts of your brain are probably trying to predict the next word in a sequence, but parts of your brain are doing much more complex things while you're listening to me, right? And so we know that LSTMs right. start to pick up on those much more complex things, but it's interesting that a model that's trained to do such a simple task can look like the brain. So this paper, originally, what I expected this paper to be was a bit of a, like, everybody calm down, LSTMs are not like the brain. That's what I thought this paper was going to be, because <laughs> the data we applied the, the LSTM correlation test to, so we asked, do LSTMs correlate to brain imaging data collected while people read regular sentences, but also collected while people read Jabberwocky sentences. So Jabberwocky is a, like a nonsense a pseudo word language where each word is sort of morphed into a pseudo word that respects some of the phonological characteristics of the word, but erases semantics. So I thought when we move to what I would think of as out of distribution language, so if we move to language that the, is unlike what the LSTM saw at train time, could we actually expect the LSTM to respond in the same way? And my intuition was no. And so when my student, Miriam, came back with uh, her results for this experiment and the answer was yes, I was extremely surprised. I mean, we, we love being surprised, but I, I sort of like made her do a lot of sanity checks to make sure it was actually true, that we were actually able to find a relationship between Jabberwocky and uh, the brain representation for Jabberwocky and the LSTM representations for Jabberwocky. I, I agree. That's a really surprising finding. And so I wonder if you can walk us through exactly what what you did to let you conclude that. Right. So we took an LSTM. So this, this data was collected by Greta Caulfield and Andrea Martin, who are at the Max Planck Institute in Nijmegen. Uh, so the data is actually in Dutch, and it was collected while native Dutch speakers listen to three kinds of stimuli. The first is just regular sentences, and the sentences are the lazy dog walked and the smart dog saying or something like that. So it's the conjunction of two sentences uh, with those sort of form or it's something like that. And so we have regular sentences. We also have Jabberwocky transformations of those sentences. So importantly, the Jabberwocky is exactly the sentence, but with these pseudo word transformations done. So the intent of Jabberwocky is to ablate semantics, but keep syntax. So be, and especially because it was a spoken uh, paradigm, they were listening to speech. You really have the prosody also helping with that to keep the syntactic meaning there, which of course is available to the people, but not not available to the LSTM. And then the third case, the third set of data from that study was word lists. So the word lists are the same words that are in the sentence, but shuffled so that they can't uh, be interpreted. There's no meaning. But the pairwise words don't fit together properly. And so then we, we ran the LSTM that was trained on Dutch Wikipedia. Uh, we ran it on each one of the stimuli sentences to produce hidden representations and then correlated those hidden representations to the brain activity of uh, people reading those that set of sentences and Jabberwocky and word lists. So you take the vector for each word. And so th this is with EEG brain data. So you have time resolution. Like you have enough time resolution to isolate individual words. Right, it's EEG. And so, so am I understanding right that you take the vector for each word and then some vector of what's going on in the brain, I don't know exactly what that vector looks like, but some, some vector from the EEG data and you say, do these two match? Or like, can I figure this out? What, how exactly does this good. work? Okay, good. 
Thanks for getting me down to the details. So I should say also the LSTM, because we had pseudo words, we needed an LSTM that understood at the character level. So we actually have an LSTM that incorporates character level information, but also operates, it makes its prediction about the next word at the word level. So that was really important because we wanted to be able to use the same model for the pseudo word sentences as the sentences. Um, so the, the way this works is we'll run the LSTM forward on these sentences to create the hidden representations. And then we train a linear regression model that takes as input the EEG data while they're reading a particular word and tries to predict the hidden representation of the LSTM. And so you have you said you have a thousand samples per second from EEG. So I think this was down sampled so, to two hundred, but yeah, on the order of hundreds, I would say. So and then you have like how many so EEG, you have like a number of probes that are attached to the brain somehow, like sixty or something. I, I don't know exactly. Yeah, so six thirty-two, sixty-four, something along those lines in a cap that people put on and like so it's sort of on your scalp. Sorry, yeah, I'm, I said that. <laughs> I just want to make sure people are not, <laughs> yeah. not putting anything. But people, of course, do put, do put probes in people's brains um, when they're undergoing epilepsy as treatment, but not in our case. Those, but that's not the data we yeah, have here. Yeah, great. Yeah, so I guess what I was getting at was you have something on the order of tens of probes mm -hmm. times 200 samples, so on the order of mid-thousands of, of a feature vector. Right that you're trying to correlate with the feature vector from the LSTM. Right, and so it's really important to use a, a regularized regression because a lot of those features, first of all, are, are correlated with each other because it's a, a readings that samples over time and also over space, so there's a lot of correlation. So we use regularized regression to help deal with the fact that there are um, many more samples than there, sorry, many more features than there are samples. So our, like, our machine learning data matrix N by P, our P would be much larger than our N. So we need to use. And how many is your N, uh, your number of samples? So N here would be, there's 80 uh, sentences, and each sentence has eight words. There's two conjunction words. There's and the in the middle, the Dutch equivalent of and the, which we don't include because it's the same in every sentence. And you have some number of people, and you're averaging across people. Yes, so we average across people for EEG data. That's something that we found works best for EEG because we have a lower signal-to-noise ratio. An MEG. MEG, we were able to, to train models on each person individually and then combine at the model performance level. But here we found for EEG, for this work and also previous work, um, we have to average at the, at the participant level. So average across all instances of a person hearing the first word of sentence three or whatever. This is a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious how that averaging affects results. I remember but when I was at CMU, there was talk of like participating in some of these studies. And I know that I was left out because I'm left-handed <laughs> and that's like, it, it breaks the averaging that you might want to do. So like what, what goes on with this? And are there, are there some imaging techniques that are better for this averaging? I guess yes. you, it sounds like so that's, it. From what yeah. So that's a great question. So I should say that this idea of averaging across participants in EEG uh, was something that my student Chris Foster did. And he just came to me in a meeting one day and he said, so I just like averaged all the data I get across all of the participants. And I was like, why would you do that? Oh my gosh, brains are different. They have different shapes. People have different size heads. We can't average the data. And he was like, but it worked better. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah. It's like one of those humbling moments where you realize that your preconceptions about a field are not serving you. So, you know, a fun advising moment. Uh -huh. But it turns out that EED data, because it has poor spatial resolution, is kind of like a smooth signal. And because it's smooth, my hypothesis is that you can average across people because the size and shape of your brain don't matter because it's sort of a smooth signal. But that's why I think we can get away with it in EEG, whereas I, in MEG, I don't think you could get away with it. But 
or fMRI, for instance? Yeah, so fMRI. So the thing about EEG and MEG is that when the data comes out of the scanner, it's at the sensor level. So you have literally like sensor four is in this position. Every time somebody puts on a, a MEG helmet, for sure, that sensor's in the same position every time. Um, but fMRI is actually already cast down to the dimensions of the brain. So every person will have a different number of what we would call voxels, so 3D pixels in their brain. And because everybody has a different shape of brain, they have a different number of voxels. So voxel 370 for you might be in a completely different place than voxel 370 for me, just because of the shape of our brains. So it's harder to average across people in fMRI. You have to morph it to, to and people do that, uh, morph it to some uh, reference brain and then do the averaging. Okay. Thanks for going on that tangent. Um, going back to the actual work that you did. So you're, you have these averaged brain representations and you want to know, does the LSTM representation correlate? Mm -hmm. And how exactly do you measure correlation here? Uh, yeah, so we use, so you can use mean squared error. Uh, so like between, because we're predicting a hidden representation and we also have the hidden representation from the LSTM, you can use uh, mean squared error. And we actually report that in the appendix of this paper. But you can also use something called the two versus two test, which uh, essentially what we do is we leave out two hidden representations, LSTM hidden representations and the corresponding brain images. So it's like leave two out cross-validation where two images are, le are left out. And then the test, instead of deciding which of the two, which of all of the possible words a particular brain image corresponds to, rather we change the test. The test is I'm giving you two brain images and I'm giving you two hidden representations. And you, you, you need to choose between the two possible ways to assign those brain images to those hidden representations. So one, two maps to one, two, or maybe one, two maps to two, one. In, and it's hard to explain with audio so, only, but. Right. So, but you basically there are two possible choices here of how to align the things. Yes. And so if I were to flip a coin, I would get on average 50% accuracy. Right, exactly. Right. And we have slightly, it and, helps a lot with when, when we have noisy data, like we do in brain imaging, because one of your predictions can be bad. As long as the other one is like, okay, you can sort of compensate for that. Um, so you can detect when a model is performing above chance with a, a little better precision than you might be able to, if you were just using um, predict one, which of the 100 possible words this word uh, corresponds to. So what kind of accuracy are we talking about here that your models actually get? Yeah, I would say it's pretty low, um, high 50s to 60s. So, But we do do um, statistical tests to make sure it's st statistically above chance. And we also correct for multiple comparisons. Uh, so we are sure that these uh, results are sound, but it's true that they are not. The effect size is small. I would, and I should say the effect size in MEG is much higher. So we can get accuracies up into the 80s and 90s in MEG. But MEG machines are millions of dollars, very expensive. Whereas EEG, I actually just bought one this year, $60,000. So it's like several orders of magnitude difference. Wow. This is really interesting to hear stuff I didn't know about. But why, why is there such a big difference between MEG and EEG? Yeah, so EEG is, it records the electrical fields. So electrical fields are, as I said, smoothed as they travel through your skull. They, they are interfered with. Uh, whereas magnetic fields are not, there's no interference from the skull. So we can more directly measure the neural activity. It's sort of a, a better measurement of what's going on. It's really interesting. And so uh, to, to rephrase what you said, I think your claim is that the signal is there. We just, because our probe is not good enough, we don't want to be too invasive with how we measure brain activity. And because of that, or we need really right. expensive equipment to do yeah. it, to do it a, a better job either way. But your experiment gives us essentially a cheaper way to find that there is a signal yeah. and then someone with better equipment could go and like find a better, 
but like if you really wanted to like get much stronger accuracy right and so uh in some ways if i had found a negative result here so if we had found what i thought we were going to find like lsms do not look like the brain we actually would have had a much harder paper to write because somebody could have just said i bet with meg you could have found the signal you're looking for and you know, there would be no no real response to that i mean that could be true if, like, if, if we had had a negative result here i also want to say though that eeg has benefits i'm making it sound like eeg is cheap and that's the only good thing about it but eeg you can collect anywhere you could collect it right now where you're sitting, where I'm sitting. Meg needs to be collected in a magnetically shielded room. So not only is the machine extremely expensive, it also requires liquid helium to cool. It also <laughs> requires a magnetically shielded room to collect the data. So there's lots of barriers to entry for uh, MEG and EEG, not just that it's cheaper, but also if you wanted to record data, say, in a hospital room, if you were doing patient collection, then you could still do that. Okay, interesting. I get the, this, again, is a, is a bit of a tangent, but it reminds me of, like, the disparity that we have now in NLP research between <laughs> small groups and groups that have tons of compute. And, and and I guess what you're saying gives gives perhaps some hope to people who can produce significant findings in small scale experiments that then the big companies with tons of compute can then actually apply. Yeah, it's an interesting okay. parallel. And it's funny because like uh, Montreal has two meg machines from what i understand and so does toronto so it's really <laughs> like totally <laughs> edmonton has zero <laughs> yeah. i've been working to try to change that but raising millions of dollars doesn't happen overnight sadly yeah yeah so okay back to the paper so you found statistically better than chance results mapping lstm representations on real language to brain representations when people hear that language yeah. right and this was a known result that's what this wasn't the new thing for your paper. So what was new about what you found? So the sentence is mapped and that, so we expected to find that, but also the Jabberwocky mapped well, with, in some cases, with close to the same accuracy. It was surprising to me. And I should say, actually, for the word list, we found no, no significant correlation to word lists. So one of the responses, I have to say also, if my reviewers are here for this paper, these were fantastic reviews because this was a hard to understand paper. It was a hard to write paper because there was a lot of things to sort of pick through and organize. And the reviewers really like, they really read the paper and thought about it. And so if you're at their reviewers, thank you very much. Um, so one of the things, yeah, one of the things the reviewers asked was like, how do you know these, this Jabberwocky isn't just what you're picking up isn't just the phonetics of the, of the language. Um, is it just the phonetics? So some of the phonetics is maintained. There's like definitely an ablation of phonetics, but maybe there's something that's, that stays there. And that's what you're picking up on. And if that were true, we would find relations between the LSTM and the word, uh, the word lists, which we do not find. And also, as I said, the LSTM has a character level representation. We actually didn't find that the character level representation correlated to the Jabberwocky data or the word list data or the sentence data. Right. I guess in a, in a an important point here for listeners that's in the paper that you didn't explicitly mention is that you actually tested all of the layers yeah. of these representations of the LSTM. Right. And so if it's if it's just phonology, then the lower layers should account for that. And it right. it's not until the LSTM receives some context from the previous time step that we see any above chance accuracy, which is, uh, tells you something about what the important information there is. It's not just the phonology, it's something to do with context. And in the case of the sentences, semantics, and in the case of the uh, Jabberwocky, we think syntax. Yeah, I guess I'm pretty surprised that the word list itself is not localizable. Like the, this sounds, at least without understanding a lot more than I do, it sounds like it contradicts the Tom Mitchell paper that we talked about at the beginning, where like particular words correlated with brain activity. And here you have words that are shown rep repeatedly and they're not correlating. So what's the difference? What's going on? I think that 
the difference is the, the it's a character level level representation that's then convolved into create a higher like a, a combined representation i think that might not be the best way to do this i think if we use i'm not sure if Miriam actually used single words like just regular word vectors to correlate to the the word list brain imaging data anyway that, that would be there was a, a glove vector experiment i thought maybe i'm remembering yeah, wrong. it's possible it sort of seems to me that that, that might have happened i forget anyway sorry but that's one of my intuitions is that, that it it might not be as good as a word vector representation and also people are doing something when they're listening to word lists that maybe isn't the same as understanding words in isolation and also like what the vocabulary size is that a difference here Maybe it was easier for some to figure out, like to find correlation with a more limited vocabulary. Perhaps uh, is 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 that a possible effect? So he had. So it could be that we are using not just nouns, but also adjectives and verbs. But again, I think he's also had some work recently where he showed that at, in sentences they can detect, although Meg adjectives, verbs, nouns, all of that. It's a good question, though. Okay. So, like, why? What is happening in the word list, and why is it such bad data? Why were we not able to find anything? Yeah, it's a good question. But then, but the, your your positive result is still pretty interesting because it implies that there's like that, that you didn't find any correlation at the word level, mm. which again might be due to lack of sensitivity of this particular yeah. methodology. Mm. But you didn't find any correlation. But then all of a sudden you do once you look at higher order, high, higher levels of the LSTM, which is more contextual. It's not really you. You say syntax in the paper. I'm not totally certain I'm ready to buy that, but <laughs> it, it's interesting that all of a sudden when you get to the higher representations of the LSTM, you get some correlation. Yeah. And the purpose of the Jabberwocky stimuli is to ablate semantics, but leave syntax intact. That's the point of it. And so... Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that is fair. Like a, if you're thinking about what's going on in the, in the LSTM at a higher level, just on regular English, it's hard to say for me, that we know conclusively that that's syntax. Like there are probing experiments that like I've been involved in that try to make these claims. And I, I feel like we have to hedge a lot and I'm, I'm not totally sold. But that's good. Well, it's good to think about this... what, it w- what it would take to sell you. So what, what would you need to know to know that an LSTM is encoding syntax? Like, actually, I think your experiment does a very good job of this. And I, it didn't actually click for me until this conversation right now, even when I was reading the paper, mm-hmm. that because you get side-by-side results of the LSTM and Jabberwocky, where like there isn't really anything there but syntax, that like, and you get essentially identical results between the two. This is pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's surprising, as I said. Like, that, like yeah, yeah. You, you can't do this with pre-trained language models because we just don't have Jabberwocky that's pre-trained. Like, if, what what I mean is like I'm thinking of the probing experiments that that a lot of people are looking at at NLP right now. Like, what what is in BERT or whatever. And I, I'm not convinced that the Jabberwocky stuff would work as well because there's, well, I don't know, I, I could be wrong. Maybe someone could do this and, and, and try to make similar claims, but it feels like it wouldn't That's in, do the same thing. You know, what I, I think we I didn't know. do, so we have essentially what are Jabberwocky transformations of the stimuli sentences. So we could have also created Jabberwocky sentences to go alongside the sentences that are in the probing experiments. Ooh, this would be a good paper. To test if the Jabberwocky, which is supposed to ablate semantics but leave syntax, if the syntax probing experiments would still work. That's an interesting question. So the, you know, the hypothesis should be yes. Uh, it would be interesting to test that. Because there's sort of like com- yeah. computer models that just take as input a word and produce a pseudo word as output. So you could just take any any of the words in that in those probing data sets and just create pseudo word sentences. 
Right. I guess the reason I'm I'm hedging here is because I think a lot of exactly how the the results that you see will should I think depend a lot on the the underlying representation that you're using and the choice of a character level LSTM. Um, I think is probably key to the results that you found here. Whereas if I use byte pair encoding or word pieces or something, mm -hmm. they, they might not encode the same. I, I, I'm not sure that they would behave the same way on Jabberwocky inputs as what you're mm -hmm. seeing. Like you could just dramatically degrade performance because of how the word piece algorithm that segments the underlying word works. Mm -hmm. So like a lot depends on this lower level stuff. Also an interesting so, question. So, yeah. So yeah, like all all of this makes me think like how can we really be sure about what you found about the brain? And I I think that you actually did set this up in a nice way to, to make strong conclusions. Which is yeah, so I should credit that to Greta and Andrea, who were the ones that created this data set um, before we had spoken to them. So they had this already in in hand when we started working with them. And psycholinguists are wonderful for creating these wonderful controlled experiments. They're just like they think about language in such a deep way when they think about their controls. They're great people to work with. <laughs> So uh, going back to my questions earlier about like, how can we be more intuitive about what you found? So again, we know that there's correlation between syntax and the, like, <laughs> I, I still have this, like, it, can we really say yeah. syntax? <laughs> uh, but so you, you found that there's better than chance accuracy when you use the LSTM representations to predict brain activity. I should say it's actually the other way around, but it doesn't really matter. It's actually predicting the hidden re representation. But. Fair enough. Is there anything stronger than that we can say or like any intuitive takeaway from this other than that there is some better than chance correlation? Uh, I think it just opens the door to more broad questions. So like this model, LSTM, my intention here was that LS, this LSTM model would not generalize to Jabberwocky because it's not trained on Jabberwocky and it doesn't know, it doesn't understand anything like the anything about the world in the way that, the, that, hum, that humans do. It's never seen anything. It's never picked up a, an apple it's never it just has a different representation of what the world is because it doesn't have this referential meaning it doesn't understand that words correspond to something in the real world so my intent my my expectation was that when we move to such a different out of sample language samples like jabberwocky that the lstm would just break in a way that didn't look anything like what the human human brain did because the human brain has all kinds of other things going on and never never mind the fact that lstms like as a neural model are not based on the brain, right? Like there's the way that we set up LSTMs is not like because we dissected the brain and found where the connections were. Like the LSTM models were sort of developed completely separately. And then they just happened to um, have this relationship. And so then is it fair to say that the brain does encode something like syntactic composition? Is that a the brain? Like, is that too strong? The, yes. I mean, doesn't the brain have to? Is that a to? conclusion that we can make from this? I feel like you wouldn't be asking me. I must misunderstand what you mean by syntactic composition, because like the like the correlation between syntax and the brain, right? Mm -hmm. What does that tell us about what the brain is doing? Maybe I phrased the question wrong. Like, can we know more than just correlation? Like that it's doing a particular operation? That there's some? Does it tell us anything about the computation the brain is doing? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think those are the next steps to do. So, like, what? And I think one of the ways to get at it is to ask how are there is a certain amount of brain activity that is explained by LSTMs and there is some that is not explained by LSTMs. And so what is the difference there? And can that help us understand how LSTMs are computing differently than the brain? What are, do the differences lead us to uh, deeper understanding? But yeah, I mean, so it's sort of a, a good question is, 
yeah, so now the LSTMs correlate to the brain. We don't understand the brain. We also don't understand LSTMs. So now where are we? Like, why is that better? And that's a great question. It's one we need to continue to ask ourselves, but I think it gives us a new tool uh, to explore the brain. And that's, I would say, the, the biggest contribution at this point. So not only why is how, why and how is the brain like an LSTM, but how is it different? And I think we maybe we could circle back around there and be able to improve language models by understanding what the brain does that our current language models do not do. Yeah, that's a great question. Any speculation on how you might try to answer that question? Yeah, sure. I have a whole research project on that. We're starting um, in computer vision, though, uh, because computer vision models are, there's a much more straightforward mapping of computer vision models at the lower levels to the lower level of the human visual system. It's like a much more straightforward um, representational mapping. So we're asking if uh, if the representations of, so I should say upfront, the representations learned by a CNN at the lower levels correlate to the lower levels of the visual system in, in humans in a very similar way that we've been describing so far with the LSTMs. So if that's true, could you essentially supply something about those representations to the CNN as it's training and get it to train faster? Because it sort of it sort of knows where it should land in representational space because it has like this other hint about how representations should look. Uh, and our, we have a, a paper in neural networks that shows that the answer there appears to be yes, it, it's faster. Questions, it's faster, it's also more accurate. So they have better accuracy in the end when they're, when they're trained up. And then one question we left unanswered was, will they be more robust to adversarial attack if they're sort of more brain-like? It's a good question. Anyway, so that, that idea, we're starting with computer vision, but I think it's clear that that could be mapped into uh, computer models of language also. The, this correspondence that you, we find in vision makes me wonder if there's a way to find a similar correspondence with language or if people have looked at this. Like for, We have a number of different architecture choices. There's been a recent revolution in the architecture that we use for representing language. Mm-hmm. Have people looked at correspondences between this architecture, like a, a transformer and the brain? And similarly, do you think it's a, a valid research agenda to like, enumerate a large possible collection of language architectures and try to see if any of them correlate to the brain. But like, will this tell us how the brain works? Uh, so I am aware of work, I think Toneva and Wehebe, they correlated brain activity to BERT, I think. And then they went back and made change, if I'm remembering right, I don't want to say too much, but they went back and made a change to the architecture, I think to the at- attention and showed that the performance actually went up. And they made that change to the attention um, because of what they saw in the correlation of brain imaging data. I think that's the best I can do to summarize that paper right now. Um, so that's an example of improving a language model based on what we see in the brain. And so could you also like do neural architecture search? Uh, I think it's an interesting question. Guided by, guided I, by brain I, I imaging guess, data. Or even like, would, it, would neural architecture search be a valid means of trying to understand the brain? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it would be a more valid way than us just like enumerating architectures like you described. Yeah, I guess that my search procedure <laughs> in what I said was naive, but like assume you had a good search. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. So I, th- I think we should also make clear that, I mean, and we've seen this already, that it is possible for models that look nothing like the brain to correlate quite well to the brain, right? That had, architecture has nothing to do with the brain seem to have a relationship to the brain anyway. So it's possible to create representations using completely different, what we would say, hardware or something, architecture, um, to produce language representations that have something in common. And I guess then to be clear on the difference, you're saying that the, the end result of the computation ends up in a similar space, but the computation itself 
may be doing something totally right, different. Right, yeah. Somehow. Like there's a relationship between LSA and uh, word vectors, right? So I, I actually, I'm not sure I've done it, but I'm sure you could find correlations between the word vectors, even though they're not, the way we arrived at those word vectors is not the same. Right, right. Okay, cool. This has been a really interesting conversation. I think that's all of the questions that I had. Alexis, did you have any others that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I guess I, I have a follow-up to some of this discussion that we are having. Do you have an intuition? So I guess earlier we were talking about how there you didn't find as much correlation for some of these higher-level operations like composition and things like that. Is that still the, the status of that line of research? Do you think that you can find correlation for higher-level reasoning, like brain states and uh, model representations for things like, I don't know, like complex inferences? What would that even look like? It's uh, not a very well-formed question, but I'm curious about your take. Yeah, so I love that question. Um, so like the, the, very, the most simple question is, I didn't find for very simple composition operations, it didn't seem to work very well. And there's some work showing that possibly the only reason those uh, sort of word similarity tests worked were it was not actually a good test of composition. But anyway, we'll leave that to the side. And LSTMs, maybe you could, you could say, are doing composition better in that they actually do correlate to the brain in these sentence tasks. Uh, and then for natural language inference, I think that's a really interesting question. That is actually something I've been trying to work towards. So starting with more like paraphrasing. Um, mm -hmm. So that like representations should be the same for paraphrases, mm -hmm. not quite the same as an inference. But I think you're right that trying to think about different ways to represent higher order meaning than just like whatever you're doing while you're reading or listening to words is an important next step. And mm -hmm. it's a way to uh, sort of go further in our understanding of how the brain works and also how language, model, language models work. Mm -hmm. So is, within neuroscience and cognitive science, is there kind of like a... Uh an agreed upon way of measuring what's happening in the brain during inferences and reasoning like that? Or is it still, because that seems like a very difficult question to me. So I was curious about like how you understand firstly what's going on in the brain. Is there an answer to that? Yeah, I guess like in as much as you can record it with brain imaging data, that's helpful. But you mm -hmm. sort of need to, you need to create a task such that people get to a representation that encodes what you want them to mm -hmm. encode at, a, at the same time. So paraphrasing is good in that way. And then like, mm -hmm. you know, you read a, a sentence and another sentence, and if they have the same meaning, by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you should be in a similar place. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Gotcha. Super interesting. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. Thanks, Alana. This has been really fun. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? Uh, I should also mention, I mentioned all my co-authors, uh, Mariam Hashem Zedeh was actually the, the, the student who did most of the work here. And also I didn't mention Martha White was involved in this research too. Great. Thanks. This has been fun. Yeah. Nice to talk to you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.